Praise the Lord. One of the things, uh, there's a couple things that I know some of us are going to be looking forward to praying for is that uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel of having to set up every single Sunday morning and tear down every Sunday night. Hypothetically. I mean, we don't want to count our chickens here, but... Um, and the other thing I'm going to be glad about is on Sunday nights, I will not be standing directly in front of that screen. Because I feel like people are looking right through my head to see the words. And uh, so um, we look forward to that. We just we know that the Lord's going to have his will in it. Amen? As Pastor said. And I, I don't want to, I'm not coming to you to try to bring you something brand new tonight, but something that the Lord just made clear to me. Uh, Matthew chapter 7. Things that we have preached many times um, in many different ways, but maybe something that is fresh to me. I was reading this passage a couple of weeks ago, and the Lord just put something to my forefront. I don't know if pastors mentioned this, because sometimes, I don't know if this happens with you, but there are times where you'll hear something almost subconsciously, like, you know, maybe you forgot about it, and then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I got this great revelation. Well, it's something pastor preached a long time ago or somebody said a long time ago, you know. Um, so I, I don't know if it was that, um, but I was reading this passage of scripture and uh, I just felt the Lord put on my heart to, to, to look at this. So Matthew chapter seven and verse 19. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Wherefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to gather tonight. And I pray, Lord, that your word would speak to our hearts and that you would further establish your, your uh position in our lives of priority, God, that we would see you for who you are and that we would glorify you for who you are, Jesus, and we give you the praise and everybody say amen. Amen. So this passage of scripture is so well known that I believe that probably, except with the exception of maybe some of the young ones, we all probably could quote it by heart. How many, Lord, Lord, and he said, I I will say to them, depart from me. Uh, There are a few things that jump out in this passage that I just can't read it without mentioning. One of them being um, in, in Acts 2, Peter, who is quoting Joel 2, says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But Jesus just said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So the question that pops into my mind immediately is which one is wrong? Well, I'm always going to go with Jesus being right, but I don't think that Peter is wrong here. I think as so many times, uh, we have to take the whole of Scripture, and if we think that maybe Scripture isn't lining up, it's because we're seeing it in the wrong light. We're talking about two different things here. Um, One of them, Peter is not mistaken 
but he is making a statement primarily in Acts 2. He says, And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, quoting the prophecy from Joel chapter 2. And he is primarily confirming that God is going to reach to the nations, which we have established for weeks that I have preached out of the book of Acts. But really what God is trying to do in the book of Acts is he is trying to show that his gospel is unhindered. There is no wall. Remember that that's the last word in the book, that unhindered. And so Peter isn't, isn't saying that, um, that what the Lord said is wrong. What he is, what he is implying is that every nation, people are going to call upon the Lord. And it's not going to be because you're a Jew that you're saved. It's not going to be because you had all the, uh, the Old Testament that you're saved. But he is saying that all those, whatever nation, tribe, and tongue, call upon the name of the Lord, there is salvation available to them. Amen? Second, he is giving that there is a saving result of knowing the name of the Lord. That's the second thing that Peter is saying in Acts 2. That neither is there salvation in any other name. That's also in Acts 2. But let's be clear about this, which you all know, but so many don't. Father, Son, and Spirit are not names of God. Neither is Lord, nor is Savior, nor is Prince of Peace. His name is not Wonderful, it's not Counselor, and it's not Mighty God. All of these are descriptions of who he is in relationship to us, but there is only one name. And the scripture tells us that he has been given a name that is above every name. Everybody say every name. Every name in the heavens, every name in the earth, and every name under the earth. His name is superior. I've said this and you've all heard me say it many times, but... If God's name isn't Jesus, then Jesus' name is higher than God's name. It's higher than every name. And so Peter is attaching to this idea of all the nations being saved. The precondition is knowing the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord isn't the Lord. We call him Lord because he is rabbi. He is Lord to us. He is master to us. But those are just descriptions. But the name given is Jesus. The name of Jesus saves and it delivers. And it only and alone saves and delivers. And I think the point being made in this scripture here is that Jesus is, is pointing out something. And I think this is really relevant for us to understand. That knowing the name or calling Jesus Lord will not result in salvation if it is not accompanied by knowing the person of Jesus. That's what the Lord is driving at. Peter's driving at that there is salvation available to everybody who knows the name of Jesus. It's available. But Jesus is driving at that just because you call me Lord, just because this comes out of your mouth. So, so let's, let's just cut the legs out from under the Baptist salvation, um, Roman road conversion. 
just saying, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life, forgive me of my sins, falls into the category of what the Lord is saying in Matthew chapter 7. That's not enough. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear that that's not enough. It's not those who say to me, Jesus, Lord, that are being saved, but it's those who are doing the will of my Father. And then he goes on to say, it is those who are hearkening unto what I am saying. You see, as we all know here, we're all home folk, but we see really quickly the dividing lines of father and son really become dim, start getting erased. The Lord, it's almost as though his, one of the things he does is get out the eraser and just erase the lines that separate father and son. As we see him more and more, we, we see the glory of God more and more. And this is exactly one of those cases. So something leaped out at me, though, in this passage that I shared with Chris and Roderick two weeks ago, and I don't know what, I don't know how I didn't see this before so clearly. I already know it, but I didn't see it in this passage as clearly as I do now. And it is found in the 21st and the 22nd verse, and I want to reread those, and it says, Not everyone that saith unto who? Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 22. Many will say to me. We've got this idea from a Trinitarian doctrine, which I know that we, I say we because all of us have come from that background. So it's kind of ingrained in us, except for the children in our church. I guess they're exempt from this. It's kind of ingrained in us that the work of the Lord was to bring salvation and kind of to introduce us to the Father. Jesus is presenting something completely different here. He is making it clear that the access to the kingdom runs directly through him. And he is the one who is determining the ones who get in and the ones who are out. That just leaped out at me because I, I, I had read this so many times and I guess I had heard it into this, in this fashion. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of how I've always heard it in my head. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, if you told me to quote that scripture, I would probably have quoted it in that term. But I had missed or somehow read over, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter or inherit the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 7 is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. Chronologically, if we understand this, from our best uh, possible understanding, the book, not all the books are written in this way, but the book of Matthew is chronologically written. And so that means for all of you kids, it means that it goes, follows a timeline. It starts at the beginning and works its way through. But if we understand the Sermon on the Mount to be the first sermon that Jesus preached is what more or less 
um, you know, scholars would, would agree on. I don't think there's any dissent on that. But if we see this chronologically, then this is the first message that Jesus preaches publicly. And Jesus wraps all that he's preached up in Matthew 5 and Matthew 6, the Beatitudes, all the talking about uh, the different things. And, and you think it's okay to lust. Uh, you know, in your heart, but as long as you don't act out on it and you think it's okay to murder in your heart and have hatred, but as long as you don't act on it. And he says, no, no, this isn't going to work. Uh, I know Moses said to you this, but I want you to listen. He's, he's saying all of these things and he's rewriting the new covenant for them. They already understood the old covenant was, was one which God was not pleased with their actions in, but they enacted the old covenant in a sense of as long as I bring the right sacrifice I'm okay. And God says, I hate your sacrifice. I want your obedience, what pastor said this morning. Now, Jesus is going to come along and all of this Sermon on the Mount, he is talking about, now you're going to have to listen to what I'm saying. I'm bringing something different than what you are thinking. But he wraps up, he puts a bookend on the end of the Sermon on the Mount with these verses that we just read. He says this, the simple truth, there is no way to enter the kingdom of heaven without going through me. And, and, and I'm going to say unto you, depart from me. So there is an entrance and an exit, and it has to do with Christ, with Jesus. It sounds to me like he is claiming from his first message the exclusive right and authority of the kingdom of God. How many would agree with that? Far cry different than what we hear today, where we try to get people to come in to church. We don't want to offend them. We coddle them. We baby them. We nurse them along, and we see if we can get them to kind of be a part of the body. And, and I hear it all the time. People don't, know, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And you cannot win people to God unless you win them to you. And I'm telling you that that is absolutely not true. People will never be won to God by winning them to you. The only thing you can do is show them Christ. And if you show them Christ, there's a possibility they will be won to him. They will come to know him. But this idea of, of coddling it, and maybe we can nurse them along, and we don't want to say things that offend people. Now, we're not good at that here. But hypothetically, this is what the, the, the premise of the church is today. And then somewhere down the road, we we'll kind of point them, oh, by the way, do you want to be saved? Let me tell you about Jesus. He's the one who brings salvation. He'll forgive you of your sins. You want to be forgiven of your sins? You want to not go to hell? Okay, well, then what you need to do is say, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and forgive me of my sins and you're saved and now you walk out the back door of the church and continue to live exactly like you did without ever taking heed to the words of Jesus. Jesus' first message, he tells them all of these things. A lot of them, I don't know if you've thought about this, but the, a lot of the Beatitudes, it's behavioral, it's conduct within how we react and respond to each other. It's not very spiritual, honestly. It's a, it's a really practical. One of the things is because the Jews tried to be spiritual and Jesus was trying to make it real practical. You got this all wrong. Even the practical stuff you're missing, so how are you going to get the spiritual? But Jesus brings it to the point 
that I think we should bring the message to promptly and quickly. And that is this, that unless you come to me and you do what I am saying, you will not be a part of my kingdom. That's what the Lord is saying. This is how he sums up all of these two chapters, almost three chapters, that he has just spoken to them. A fairly lengthy sermon, I imagine. And he sums it up by saying this. There's going to be a lot of people who say to me, call me Lord, that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're not doing what I say to do. How can we offer salvation? I hear this so many times. As though we are giving the salvation. You cannot save a single person. You cannot love a person into the kingdom. You can love them, but if you love them, you will tell them the truth. Which is, unless you're ready to surrender your life and follow Jesus, there is no salvation for you. I was thinking about that this week because I remember, uh, man, it would have been Rodney's junior year. We were driving to a, I, might, I think I've shared this before, but it reminded me of it this week. We were driving to a tournament in Fresno and a long, ended up being a seven-hour drive because we hit traffic. And I had a freshman in the car who was excessively annoying. I know you can't imagine a 14-year-old boy that's annoying, but just go with me. And he asks me at one point on the trip after much Shut up, turn off the filthy rap music. He had a little speaker he brought with him. And so we got into a, a radio war. I put on some bluegrass at full volume in the van and he had his little speaker and I won. So we're driving down the road and he says to me something along the lines of, of um, coach, what is sin? And I said, let me ask you this. Do you have any intention of following the words of the Lord? No, then I'm not having this conversation with you. I can't love him into the kingdom. Well, you know, I mean, sin, it's, it's to, when we don't, you know, we don't do maybe some good things. Have you ever stole? Okay, that's a sin. The issue is not there. The issue is in the obedience to Christ. And if you don't desire to follow him and to follow his words, then we are literally casting pearls before swine. And I'm not suggesting don't share Christ with your co-workers and your neighbors. I'm suggesting share Christ with your co-workers and your neighbors. Leave them at a point of decision. Leave them at a point not about salvation, about obedience. Obedience results in salvation. Salvation is the result of doing what Jesus says to do. So if we offer some relief of guilt, some satisfaction by, by praying a certain prayer or saying certain things, then we offer a false gospel. And I thought in 1 Corinthians where Paul, dealing with the, with the Corinthian church, and he says, no man can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit, Romans 12, I think like 3 or 4, I think is where it's at. And 
So many people get hung up here because then they'll say, well, this person said Jesus is Lord. I can get any filthy dirtbag sinner to say those words. It's not about the words coming out of your mouth. It's about the conversation of your life. Nobody is going to say Jesus is Lord in how they act and how they are. They're not going to make known Jesus is Lord from their life if that's not done by the Spirit of God in them. But we're all caught up on how we say things. And I, and I just thought about that in light of this passage because Jesus says clearly twice, many will call me Lord but will not be a part of the kingdom. There's going to be, in fact, he goes on to say, there's going to be a lot of people who call me Lord that do wonderful works and who cast out devils and will not inherit the kingdom of God because of their iniquity. Because it's 100% about coming to Jesus. I really want to emphasize something to all of you that I am fully aware that you probably understand but I feel like we need to restate it. We get so caught up. And I, I don't think we are that, that way currently or here. But we can get so easily caught up in being doctrinally correct. That we no longer require personal relationship with Christ. It's just about knowing But I think it's so vital for us to understand and to remember that that is not what it's about. Sin and destruction await any of us who lose relationship with him. So, well, I used to think one way and now I think differently. I used to be a Trinitarian and now I'm not. I've been enlightened. I've come to a higher understanding, a greater truth. I would say that hopefully that is true for all of you. Not that you were stupid somewhere else, but that you are growing in the Lord. And, but it's so easy for us to grab onto what we believe and think somehow that that is making us right. We cannot be secured By our own truths. It doesn't matter how right your truth is. Jesus just gave them the truth. He just told them in this passage the truth. Everything they need to know for salvation has been spoken here. It's it. And each of them walking away, many of them would have felt like, I now have truth. But many of them are going to come to him and he's going to say, depart. We do not have a right to our own truths and our own truth does not secure us and our being better than other people or righter than other people or having more truth and knowledge than other people does not secure salvation for us. This is why no church, no doctrine, no denomination or lack thereof can be the truth. Baptist is not the truth. Pentecostal is not the truth. 
And as Pastor had said a few weeks ago, apostolic is not the truth. There's only one truth. And it is Jesus. It's not just in Him. It's not as though we get to take from Him truth and get it in our lives. Jesus is truth and I got truth from Him and now I have truth. No, it is our personal relationship with Him where we walk in truth. The only truth I have is if I am in Christ. As soon as I step away from personal obedience and relationship, I cannot come to right standing with God by simply being a part of this body. Now, this is, say, well, Pastor Ronnie, you just talked about how that you can't, you know, God intends for us to be a part of the body. He does. He does not intend for you to be lone wolf. He does not intend for you to be running around doing your own thing. But the converse of that is this. You cannot be a part of the body without having a personal relationship with the head. There's no tag-ons. There's no leeches. You have to know Jesus. You can be in truth, but the only possibility to be in the truth is to be in Christ. Each of us must individually come to know him. There is no truth that exists outside of him. I love this passage in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. Paul says that I might win Christ and might be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. This is how the apostle thought important to share with the Philippian church that I might be found in him. If you are trusting echoes of Calvary to keep you in the truth, you're going to miss the mark. Well, pastor, man, you, I, we appreciate your ministry. We appreciate the revelation that you give us of Christ. We cannot trust our pastor to keep us in the truth. You can sit in this church, which I believe it's the best group of people I've ever been around. You can be around a good group of people who really sincerely love the Lord and split hell wide open because you're not obeying the Lord for yourself. There is no security. There's no protection. We can say like Richard Hilton preached a long time ago, you can't get to hell from here. But you can get to hell while sitting on the pew in this church. You absolutely can. It's harder. You're going to end up getting up and walking out likely, but it's possible because it comes down to my obedience to the Lord, my personal obedience. Truth is not found in knowing that he is Lord, but we hold the truth when we daily surrender to him as Lord. And there's a huge difference. Is and as, they sound the same, but they are not the same. To know that Jesus is Lord does not make him my Lord. To recognize that he is the creator, the master, the almighty, does not equal my obedience to his word. It does not make him my rabbi. And it does not make me obedient to his voice. That all comes from my own personal desire to follow what he is saying. I think that there should be a warning here. 
Because I really do feel like so many times that we sit in the pews of the church and we become very comfortable with what we are doing, where we are at. We feel like we possess every group. You can go to any church and there's going to be the, the faithful that they feel like they are in possession of truth. Well, if God really didn't want me to do what I'm doing, then he would tell me. What if he is? How would you hear it? It, there has to be such a, a tune into the voice of the Lord to hear what he's saying. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. But we become so cluttered with all of this stuff of the world. We become so cluttered with the news, the, the bad news, the good news, the entertainment, the things that we enjoy, the things that we despise. The rightness of what we believe. The wrongness of what other people think. And in all of that, you can completely lose the voice of the Lord. There's many voices in the wind. But the scripture in the Old Testament says that he came in a still, small voice. I'm going to suggest to you that the number one thing you need to do every day is to remove the noise from your life. For some, here tonight, it might need to be a fast from some things that are creating noise in your life so that you can hear His voice. I'm not trying to convict you or make you feel guilty. I, that's not my intention. I'm saying there is nothing more important than knowing the voice of the Lord. It's the only truth. It's the only way we can find truth and know truth and have truth is to hear his voice, to walk with him. And anything that separates us from that, anything that drives a wedge in between, that's easy. We say, well, you know, I can see that's separating me from God. But so many times, how can we walk with him except that we hear him? Why do we think that our flesh is automatically doing what God wants it to do when we know our flesh is disobedient to the voice of God? Follow your heart. It's a lie from the devil. Everything you hear every day is what you want to hear. And you're going to have to tune in to hear the voice of the Lord. You're going to have to shut out some things to hear the voice of the Lord. I've often said that I believe that Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 to be the greatest picture of grace, of God's grace. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. But we just read, again, this is chronologically. We can place this passage in the first year of Jesus' ministry. Jesus would have recently said, many are going to come to me, and I'm going to say, get away from me. And now he says, come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But his grace is that he wants men to, 
to come to him. He wants women to come to him and find rest. The grace in this picture is that he even calls us at all. Can you, I don't know if you do this, but this happens fairly frequently in my life. I will sit and I will say, God, why would you even speak to me? Anybody else ever feel that way? Why would you have relationship with me? Why would you want to know me? It's the grace of God. We do not earn it. There's nothing that, there's nothing that's really redeemable in me. But that his grace should be shown to other men. He, he speaks to us. He uses us. It's the grace of God that he even calls us. It's the goodness of God that draws men to repentance, the scripture says. I don't believe you come to repentance on your own. And I know that that might kind of strike people the wrong way, but scripture also says that no man comes to God but by the drawing of his spirit. And it is the goodness of God that draws men unto repentance. You didn't just come up with it on your own one day. You know, I think I'm going to turn the corner and I'm going to give God a try. That's not how that happened. But the goodness of God reached down towards you and somebody shared that Jesus has has salvation for you and you have a, a, a new life, a newness of life is available to you. Somebody shared that with you and that spirit of God drew you and it is the goodness of God that called you to a place of repentance. But how do you know how to repent if you never heard of him? The changing of your mind about how you thought, the, the changing of your mind about your understanding of who he is. It only would be that he speaks to you of who he is that you could change your mind about it. So it is God's goodness. Why would he give me rest from burdens that I deserve? Why would he give me rest from burdens that I'm the one taking them up? It's my own, it's my own stuff. It's my own weights. It's my own things, my issues, my, my, my thinking that is bringing the burdens. Why would God say, hey, I know you picked up all this junk that you don't need, but if you'll just bring it to me, I'll take it from you. I don't understand why he would do that. But yet this verse stands out to us as this call. And I think of Isaiah 55 when I think of this passage and the other one when he stands up at the great feast and it says, Ho, let everyone who thirst come to the water. Let him who is without money come and buy bread and buy milk and buy wine. You can come. Why do you labor for that which does not feed you? This is Isaiah 55. And I think of this when Jesus stands up and he says, Come to me. Come to me. Many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord. And I'm going to say, I don't know you. Get away from me. Come to me. How can he say those two in the same breath? Because his desire is that they come to him. Do you understand? It's not that he does not want them. The problem is they're saying to him, Lord, but he's not their Lord. That's the issue. It's not that he doesn't want men to come. It's that he wants them to come to him. He doesn't want them to come to salvation. He doesn't want them to come to healings. He doesn't want to come, them to come to miracles, signs, and wonders. He wants them to come 
to him. I want to make something clear tonight. The law does not qualify you for the kingdom. And the law cannot keep you in the kingdom. Paul says this of the Galatian church. You began this race so well. Who bewitched you? Did you start out this thing by the works of, the, of man, the works of the law, the works of the flesh? Or was this started in you by the Spirit of God? And now you want to set off the work of the Spirit of God and you want to go out and get circumcised. Why? This is what Paul says to the Galatian church. The law cannot keep you. Jesus doesn't want to introduce you to the law. He doesn't want to introduce you to a better law. He wants to introduce you to himself. He wants you to come to him. I'm not proclaiming the kingdom of God to be lawless. We have a different law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ. We no longer live within the law of sin and death. And all I hear... Man, I'm not going to preach it, and I'm almost done, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and share it. I got, but I was thinking about this the other day. Rodney and I were talking because I, he had read some, some woman who had said that uh, the preacher got up and said uh, that Jesus did not come to destroy the law. And she said, oh, yes, he did. No, he didn't. He said, I came to fulfill the law. You don't get to destroy the law. So I'm in Christ, so I don't have a law. Oh, no, you have a law. It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And there, you fulfill the law also. You don't get to destroy the law. You must also fulfill the law. How do you fulfill the law? In Christ. You, don't, you, you can't do it on your own. You can't fulfill the law by following the commandments. Because you're not perfect. If you've ever committed any one of those, you're guilty of the whole law. The Apostle Paul says this clearly too. But you must fulfill the law in Christ. That's why I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me. But on a little side note, I, th I think it's amazing. Because everybody, and I told him, I didn't even know this. I said, I guarantee you where she's going with this is she wants to drink. It's where everybody goes. We don't live under the law. If you ever hear that, the next line is, it's okay to drink. That's where it goes. And he, he goes, pulls it out. Oh, sure enough, right in the same article. Why? Well, I got a question for you, just a side note. This isn't really what I'm preaching, but why is it that that's always where it goes? If we don't live under the law, then why can't we just be also homosexual? Why can't we just commit fornication? Why can't we go out and commit murder? Why don't we take that and apply it to the lawlessness? Because it's just really an excuse to do what we want to do. And we understand that's so vile and so wrong and so off, but somehow we sneak in there drinking. Sitting around naked in a hot tub. Now, we had an experience with that when we were young men. Uh, all the pastors, youth pastors in there, and, you know, they were kind of meeting and we were going there and said, guys, we got to leave. I didn't feel good about this, the New Year's party. And sure enough, they were all sitting around naked in the hot tub that night, but they're free from the law. They don't have any law. No, no, we still have a law, the law of Christ. But it's not a list of do's and don'ts. 
It's an obedience to his voice. Is there a difference? Yes, there is. Because the list of do's and don'ts is available to everybody, whether they know the law giver or not. Every one of us, how many of you personally know the sheriff of Rogers County? Anybody here? The law still applies to you. You still have to drive the right speed and you, you can't carry a gun into the courthouse. All those laws still, but I, you know, I don't have to know him to know the law. But to know the voice of Jesus, I've got to be in relationship with him, which is a totally different thing because it's not about a list of do's and don'ts and rules that I can't live in and, and I must wear this and do that. No, no, it's all, that's all the law of sin and death. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ boils down to a relationship with Christ in which he speaks to me and I hear his voice. And every one of us here should thank God that we have ministry that is pointing us to hear the voice of the Lord all the time. That's what the thrust of it is. Say, well, man, we preach the same stuff over and over again because we need to hear it over and over again. Our problem is that we don't hear the voice of the Lord. And so we're reminded. I, I want to close by looking at the 25th through the 27th verses because I think this is really important for us to understand the 28th and the 29th verse. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. I want you to listen to verse 27. All things... Why don't you say, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son, but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, except, or if not, the Son. And he to whom the Son will reveal him. Proceeding come to me. Jesus qualifies himself as the only one who can become two. Think about that for a moment. There is no one else to go to. That's why Jesus says, come to me. All things have been surrendered unto me. All things yielded, handed over to me, the transfer of all things now means that no one or nothing can be fully acquainted with, recognize, or have experiential knowledge of the Son without knowing the Father. And no one or nothing can have the fullness of the Father without knowing the Son. Even those to whom the Son desires to disclose or uncover him. Jesus just revealed in the first year of his ministry what he would remind them of on the last night of his ministry. If you have seen me, 
you've seen the Father. What is God's will toward men? I sum this up with this question. What is God's will toward men? Well, when you read verse 28 in light of verse 27, then you can see that very clearly that it is the love of God for all mankind to come unto me. This is God's desire for every one of us that we would come to Jesus. You cannot know God without knowing Jesus. And you cannot know Jesus without knowing God. Our duty is to respond to that voice. And I want you to think about that this week. This qualifying of the 27th verse. All things. There's so much distraction, as I said, about our lives with, with all the things that we hear, but there's so much distraction within theology about how are we going to get to know God, about how are we going to grow in God. But what I hear clearly in the scripture is never that we are instructed to grow in God, but that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ because all things have been surrendered to him. Everything is about him. Everything is about coming to him. When, when G Jesus ends the seventh chapter of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the problem is you're going to call me Lord, but you're not coming unto me. When he talks in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, his, he is imploring them, come to me. And the last night of his ministry, he is telling his disciples, come to me. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. I will not leave you orphans, but I'm going to return to you. All you need to know in your daily life, the will of God for your daily life is that you would come to Jesus and surrender to his voice. Amen? Pastor.